I want to begin with a, a question this morning. In fact, it's a question that I'm going to um, uh, repeat a few times throughout the message today. Uh, but the question is simply this. What am I doing with what I know? What am I doing with what I know? What am I doing with what I know? It was a cold and clear Sunday, April 14, 1912, as a great ocean liner, the Titanic steamed full speed ahead across the Atlantic. 882 feet long and weighing 46,000 pounds or tons, it was the largest single moving object of its day. It was known to many to be the ship of dreams. It was believed by most to be unsinkable. Uh, some even saying God himself couldn't sink the Titanic. With over 2,200 people on board, Captain Edward J. Smith was out to make history. Traveling at a record speed of approximately 27 miles an hour, the captain awoke that Sunday morning to a clear sky. As he stood on the bridge and sipped his tea, he probably dreamt of the newspaper headlines. Uh, not only was he captain of the, of the largest ship, but he would be remembered as captain of the fastest ship, hoping to cross the Atlantic in record time. 9 a.m. Sunday morning, he receives a message. His first warning of danger, it's from the passing ship, the Coronia, and the message simply reads, warning, icebergs, growlers, and field ice. The captain posts the message in the chart room, but says nothing. 11.40 a.m., a second warning, this time from the Dutch ship Nordum of icebergs in the same area. The captain enjoys his lunch. 1.40 p.m., the White Star steamer, the Baltic, uh, sends a message that simply reads, warning, we're passing icebergs. Five minutes later, the German ship Amerika uh, reports seeing two large icebergs. Three minutes later, a warning message from the Greek steamer, the Athena, reporting a large quantity of field ice in the area. Captain Smith reads the messages, folds them up, and puts them in his pocket. The party begins in the dining hall. Music and laughter is heard throughout the ship. The evening meal is served and dancing and drinking continues. Outside, the air temperature drops to freezing, but the water remains calm. Now 7 p.m., according to one of the uh, surviving officers, the sea is like glass, uh, making it next to impossible to ever spot an iceberg until you're right on it. Once again, a warning message arrives, this time from the Californian reporting three large icebergs to the southwest. The captain enjoys his cocktail. 9.30 p.m., a seventh warning, this time from the, from the Masaba, reads like this, warning, numerous large icebergs in the area. The captain's response, maintain speed, keep watch. I'm going to bed. I think most of you know the rest of the story. April 14, 1912, 11.40 p.m., the Titanic hits an iceberg, 
Three hours later, the unsinkable ship is at the bottom of the ocean. 1,500 people are dead. Now just think about that for a minute. I mean, seven clear warnings, and yet the captain did nothing. He didn't respond. I believe the story begs the question this morning, what am I doing with what I know? What am I doing with what I know? Well, we're heading back to the book of Daniel this morning. So I encourage you to uh, get hold of a Bible and and turn there with me if you would. We're going to have to follow along. I I don't have it on the PowerPoint. Uh, Go into Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Your pew Bible is page 619. If you're looking for that, it's uh, open the Bible to the center, right? You'll be in that big book of Isaiah. Uh, Go to the right. You'll come to Jeremiah, little book of Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then the book of Daniel. It's right there, Daniel chapter 5. And while you're doing that, I'll just kind of set the context here. You see, in many ways, the story of the Titanic is very similar to what's happening here uh, in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, First of all, there's a party going on. There's dancing, there's drinking. It's happening in a very, very luxurious setting. Similar to the Titanic, there's a party going on. Secondly, there's been clear warning of imminent danger. For the Titanic, it was icebergs. For the king of Babylon, it was an invading army. There has been clear warning of approaching danger. Like the Titanic, the story before us this morning sadly ends in disaster. Ignored warnings almost always do. So here's how I want to play this out this morning, just so you know where we're going. And and basically, I'm just treating this the same as uh, we have been uh, here in the book of Daniel. And uh, what I'd like to do is is basically lay this out uh, in, in six scenes. I see the story happening in six scenes, and so we'll, we'll travel that route kind of verse by verse. Uh, I'm also going to park for a few minutes at three or four rest areas along the way, all right, to bring out some biblical truth. I, I believe the biblical truths here really help to bring this story uh, back home to our house, and so we can, we, we can get it that way. Uh, but before I do all that, uh, we need to go to history class for, for a few minutes this morning, and I, I, I know how much you all love history um, but you need to realize that, that, first of all, there's been a period of about 30 years uh, between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, in fact, I'd encourage you to write this date right there at the top of chapter 5, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles. If you have a pew Bible, go ahead and mark it up. They're free to take home anyway. Uh, right at the beginning of chapter 5, October 12, 539 B.C. This entire story... In the, in the chapter 5 here of Daniel, happened on October 12, 539 B.C. All the history books would agree with that date. Interesting. Even secular history would, would give you that date. Now, for those of you who have uh, who've been here for the last few weeks, who, who's been the king of Babylon uh, these last five Sundays? You remember that guy? What was his name? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yes. Our friend Nebuchadnezzar. But see, when I, when I read the first verse of chapter 5, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet. So, so who is this guy? Who is King Belshazzar? 
I mean, these last few weeks we've been talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and it's interesting because for centuries, um, archaeologists and, and historians knew nothing of Belshazzar outside the book of Daniel. In fact, for years, people who doubt the historical accuracy of God's word have said, you know what, there's no such king, there's no such person as, as King Belshazzar. I mean, this guy, he's, he's a figment of someone's uh, imagination, and you guys that believe the Bible, I mean, how clueless can you be? There's no such person as King Belshazzar. And so they'd grab some history book off the shelf, and they'd say, look, here's the record. I can show you there's no King Belshazzar. Here's the record. Here, here's the, here, look it up. Kings of Babylon. Here's what it is. Nebuchadnezzar for 45 years. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar was a king. His son, Evel Merodach, took over for two years. He was assassinated by his brother, uh, Neraglisser, who ruled for four years. And then this other guy comes on the scene. He obviously wasn't too great. He, he lasted two months. The, two months. Uh, this Labishi uh, Marduk. Maybe it was the name. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and then finally we have King, uh, King Nabonidus who ruled for 17 years until Babylon was destroyed. And so they'd pull out this record, and it was like, look, there is no King Belshazzar. But friends, just like always with God's word, somebody got digging around over there. And in 1854, they dig up this clay cylinder with all of these records in it. And it turns out, just so happens, that Belshazzar was King Nabonidus' son. And King Nabonidus, actually in that 17 years of reign, there was about 10 years there, near toward the end of it, that he, that he went to another country and he allowed his son to take, over the king, to take over the kingship. King Belshazzar ruled for about 10 years in Babylon. Now I say all of that to say this. Listen, this, this book that we open week after week, and, and I pray that you do that in your homes as well. But friends, listen, we don't ever have to worry about the accuracy of God's word. We don't have to worry about it. Make note of it. God has spoken, and his word is sure. God has spoken, and his word is sure. It's true. It's reliable. And when so-called experts may say, you know, that's nonsense, or, or you get some history professor and he stands up at the front of a university class and he looks out and he says, so we got any Christians here today? He says, you guys, you, you guys, just, you guys are clueless. There was no King Belshazzar. And they start to make fun of you for things like that and they start to ridicule God's word. Friend, listen to me. Don't ever back down from God's word, from what it says in the book. Give it time. Give it time. Interesting, this event that we're going to read about this morning. God said it was coming 30 years ago, back there in Daniel chapter 2. So let's get to that story. Here's the first scene. I, I'm just going to call this one the king mocks. The king mocks. It goes like this. Just, just imagine this scene with me. Verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. 
Well, Belshazzar was drinking his wine. He gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, actually his grandfather, uh, Nabonidus' wife was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So actually his grandfather, there's no such distinction in the Hebrew. Grandfather, father, all the same words. So, so Belshazzar uh, gave orders to bring in this gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that, the, that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone. All right, you need to understand what's happening here. city of Babylon is surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. They're right outside the walls, but the, the Babylonians have built these huge walls around their city. They're like 25 feet wide. Uh, this, this sanctuary is probably about 35, maybe 40 feet, but if you can imagine, 25-foot walls, uh, huge. They go way up into the air. they got a wall, 25 feet. they got about 40 feet of of kind of space in between. You make it over the first wall, we'll take you out there. Then they've got another wall, 25 feet as well, way up into the air. They've got a river that runs through the center of the city. The Euphrates River actually flowed through the city of Babylon, so they got all kinds of water. According to history experts, they've got food stored up for 20 years inside the city of Babylon. And so here's Belshazzar, this proud and arrogant king, and he's like, you know what? We are, we are totally untouchable. Totally. In fact, just to show those guys outside that wall that are making all that noise that we're totally untouchable, why don't we go and have a big old party? Why don't we make some noise? And so there he is, and it says he calls a thousand of his nobles. So there's probably three or 4,000 people in the building. And so you can just imagine, I mean, the, 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 the stereo is cranked up and the empties are piling up over in the corner and there's guys and there's girls and there's stuff happening in the side rooms and here's cool Belshazzar and he gets a few drinks in him. And he calls his best buddies over and he's like, hey, hey, hey guys, come on over here. I, I, I've got an idea. He says, remember those, remember those incredible wine goblets? that my grandfather stole from the temple back in Jerusalem. You remember those things? Remember how awesome they were? He says, we're having a party here, man. we, we got to go get those things. Somebody go bring them in here. And off they go. And so they go get them. And what you need to understand is what they are getting there is something that Almighty God has declared holy. It's been consecrated. It's been set apart for holiness. And so just imagine as this drunken king takes those holy things and with a smirk of arrogance on his face, standing in front of everybody, he slops the wine to his lips. It's like spitting in the face of God. Friends, listen, we need to be really careful about taking what God has declared holy and using it for unholy purposes. We need to be really careful about taking what God has declared holy and using it 
for unholy purposes. You say, well, what kind of things are you talking about? What, what, what's holy today? Well, first of all, let me say that it's got nothing to do with the building, all right? We're no longer under the Old Testament tabernacle system. According to God's word, God no longer lives in a place built by human hands. Folks, this is a building. God doesn't reside here. But if you're a child of God this morning, you need to realize that he resides in you. It's you that's holy. You're the temple where God resides. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize, don't you understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You, you, you don't even belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. And so you must honor God with your body. Friends, let me ask you, what are you doing with what you know? What are you doing with that holy vessel called your body? What are you doing with what you know? In those private moments, what are you allowing in through your eye gate? What sorts of things are your hands touching? What kinds of conversations are you engaging in with your holy temple? What kind of things are you listening to? What kind of places are you going? What sort of thoughts are you allowing just free range? in your temple. What are you doing with what God has declared holy? You see, when we use our bodies, what God has declared holy for unholy purposes, when we engage in things that aren't pleasing to God, listen, friends, God will only allow that to go on for so long. There comes a limit. Galatians 6, 7 simply says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He won't allow it to go on for, for, forever. But, but mocking God is exactly what Belshazzar does here. Which leads us to this second scene. Notice verse 5, God speaks. God speaks. God does not allow it to go on indefinitely. God speaks, it says, suddenly, notice that, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Now just think about that for a second. You're in this room with two or three thousand people and all of a sudden you notice everybody's kind of looking over there and you glance over, over there toward the light and there's this, like there's this, this human hand is just hanging there in midair. There's no body attached to it. It's just this hand. And all of a sudden it starts to write something on the wall. I'm telling you, at that point, I don't care how many drinks you've had. You'd be sobering up in a hurry. No doubt about it. I mean, you talk about getting the king's attention. 
You sit here this morning and you say, well, does God really do stuff like that? Come on. Well, he did it here. And I believe with all my heart this morning that God will do whatever it takes in your life to get your attention. He'll do whatever it takes. God still speaks. The question is, are you listening? The king mocks. God speaks. Leads to this next scene. The king trembles. The king trembles. Back to verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. I'll bet he did. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. This is the guy that a few minutes ago was standing there sipping from these wine goblets. So what did he do? What do you suppose he might do? Well, verse 7. This shouldn't be too shocking. It says, The king called out for the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, this guy will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. All right, time for a question. In light of what we've studied for the last five weeks, will these guys be able to help him or not? No, probably not, right? Same old deal. So who do you suppose they might call? Who do they call on in the book of Daniel? What's his name? Daniel. Daniel, right answer. Right answer leads us to this next scene. Daniel interprets. Drop to verse 13 for a second. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, actually go down to verse 16, the king talking. The king says to him, uh, Now I have heard that that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. I've heard about you, Daniel. Uh, If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, uh, you, Daniel, you will be clothed in purple and given a gold chain around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Interesting, that third highest ruler in the kingdom, you know why that is. Because Nabonidus was clearly king of Babylon. Uh, uh, Belshazzar was next in line, so you will be third in line. Watch Daniel's answer. You got to kind of like this. Remember, uh, Daniel's like 82 years old at this point, all right? He's, he's been there, he's done that, he's, he's, he's seen it all. Uh, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, uh, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. Maybe those wise men, they, they probably need it. In other words, look, I could care less about your purple coat or some goofy gold chain. It's just stuff, and by tomorrow morning, it's going to be gone anyway. So you can just keep your gifts and your rewards, give them to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and I'll tell him what it means. But then he's like, you know what? You know what, Belshazzar? Let me remind you of something first. Let let me tell you, before we get to the interpretation Let me tell you a little story about your grandfather. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language, they dreaded and feared your grandfather. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, He promoted those he wanted to humble. He humbled. 
But notice, it's like warning, warning, are you listening, Belshazzar? Do you remember what happened to your grandfather? When his heart, warning, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, warning, warning, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and he was stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Until, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, his son, verse 22, here it is. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Friends, underline that in your Bible. Underline that in the Pew Bible. You have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. You have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Friends, again, I say to you this morning, what are you doing with what you know? See, right now, I I could care less about what you don't know. What I'm asking you is, what are you doing with what you already do know? You see, the whole point of Daniel chapter 5 is that Belshazzar knew better. He knew better. He knew better. But it didn't change anything in his life. Loved ones, listen, please hear my heart in this. Some of us have heard the truths of God's word our entire lives. We were carried in as a little baby. We've heard it. We know it. And yet we walk out of this place week after week and nothing changes in our lives. And I believe Daniel 5 begs the question, what am I doing with what I know? You see, biblical maturity isn't about what I know. It's about what I'm doing with what I know. Did you hear me? Biblical maturity isn't about what I know. It's about what I do with what I know. It's about the choices that I make. Biblical maturity means that I go on with what I've known to make better choices. And so often we think God's honored when we get together and we study another verse. Don't misunderstand me, we do need that. But I believe with all my heart this morning that God is a whole lot more concerned with what you're doing, with what you already know. We're to love one another. I know that. We're to honor one another. 
I know that. We're to forgive one another. I know that. We're to encourage one another. I know that. We're to consider others better than ourselves. I know that. We're to humble ourselves. I know that. Isaiah says, if my people who are called by my name will get on their knees and they will humble themselves before me and they will call out to me, I will meet with them, I will heal them, I will heal their land. But what are we doing with what we already know? You see, the problem with Belshazzar wasn't that he didn't know. The problem was he chose to ignore what he already knew. He knew the story about his grandfather. Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew about your grandfather. You've been t- we've been talking about it around here for decades. You knew it, but you have not humbled yourself, though you knew that's what you should do. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, Belshazzar. You had those goblets brought from his temple to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, you, you guys drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and and, and wood and stone and all that stuff which can't see or hear or understand. But, But Belshazzar, you didn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. In other words, Belshazzar, you knew better, but you chose to ignore it. He sat in church and checked his watch. You knew better, but you chose to ignore it. In verse 24, it says, Therefore God did something. God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what it means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Just let me ask you, what should Belshazzar have done at this point? I mean, think about it. You've just been told by God, your days are numbered. You've just been told by God, you've been weighed on the scales and you've been found wanting. May I remind you that all of us are found wanting apart from Jesus Christ balancing them up. You've just been told by God, you're going to lose it all. Your kingdom is going to be divided. I mean, wouldn't that be a good time to maybe get down on your knees and cry out to God? Wouldn't that be a good, wouldn't that be a good response? And yet notice what he does. If you're keeping track, scene five, the king ignores. The king ignores. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar, look at what he does with this. Belshazzar's command, Daniel, Daniel, the guy that doesn't want any of this stuff, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest in the ruler, highest ruler in the kingdom. In other words, Belshazzar once again ignores the warning. He doesn't act on what he knows. It's like, oh, well, I, I know I shouldn't do this, but I really feel like doing this, and everybody else is doing it, so I'll just go ahead and do it. God will forgive me. He always forgives me. And friends, here's the point. We need to be really careful about presuming 
on God's grace. Look at this verse with me for a moment. Hebrews 10, 26 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, in other words, I know better, but I choose to ignore it. If we deliberately continue sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. And even worse, there's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment. Now, I don't particularly like that verse. But it's what God's word says. Friends, listen, we have no promise of later. Nebuchadnezzar, God give him years. Belshazzar is called to account tonight. That's how this final scene plays out. Just called it God judges. Notice verse 30. That very night, that very night, that has got to be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Friends, that's a sad ending for someone who knew better. And it leads me to this one final point this morning. Make note of it. God's eventual judgment of sin is certain. God's eventual judgment of sin is certain. See, we're living in a day of grace, but the reality is that that day won't last forever. And I wish I could tell you that it would. But God's word says that a day of judgment is coming. Now again, I I don't particularly like that message. I really don't. And I'll be honest with you, I I struggled with the last part of this message for a long time this past week because I don't like that. Who wants to tell people that? Give me something that makes me feel good. Give me something that is fun. Something I can get excited about. God says, no. Eventual judgment of sin is certain. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, what will that day be like? I'm curious. What, what might that day be like? And I get searching this last week and I found this old video clip that I want to end with this morning. It's by a, an old English, English evangelist by the name of Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, he's gone on to glory. Here's how he describes what Judgment Day will be like. Just listen as as he draws this picture, if we can get it up here. But here the great men, the rich men, the mighty men, the rulers. I saw the dead, small and great. Every king, every king that's ruled over England, the caliphs of Baghdad, the Maharajas of India, the multimillionaires, the billionaires. They're all going to stand one day. Can you imagine it? At the judgment seat of Christ, to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Well, of course, if you have a judgment, you must have a judge. 
at the voice of the Son of God, they're all going to rise and face the eternal judge. What will he be like? There are some dreadful pictures, I think, that have been given by the great masters, so-called. And, and they've given us pictures of Jesus. But I'll tell you what, it's a very different picture in the Word of God. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ needs a new revelation of the majesty of God. This is the King of Kings, and He's the Judge of Judges, and it's the Tribunal of Tribunals, and there's no court of appeal after it. The verdict is final. There'll be no biased judgment. The Apostle Paul got a picture of Jesus, not with a lamb in his arms, not like the stained glass windows where Jesus looks pathetically feminine. And when I hear people singing, put your hand in the hand of him that walks on the water, forget it. Or the new son that's now, shake hands with Jesus. Listen, when you see Jesus, you're not going up and say, Hey, buddy, I'm glad you died for me. When you see Jesus, you'll be almost paralyzed with fear unless you have a glorified body and a glorified mind. The picture of Jesus here is not the picture of a pathetic individual pushed around by anybody who wants to push him around. I think sometimes we think we're going to march up and say, well, you know, Jesus, do you know how many years I served you and how many souls I won for you and how many sermons I preached for you? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, what will he be like in heaven? Well, I'll tell you what the book says he'll be like. It says his hair is as white as snow. His feet are like burnished brass. His face is like the sun in its strength. His eyes are living coals of fire. His tongue is a sharp two-edged sword. John, the man who had walked with him and talked with him for three years, says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. What do you think you and I are going to do? So there's the question. What will you do when you stand there before Jesus Christ? See, there'll be nobody else there with you. It'll be you and God at that point. And we don't need to fear that day. What I'm telling you, friends, is that we need to prepare for it. What are you doing with what you know? What are you doing with what you already know? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you know every person that's in this room. You know their name. You know their situation. You knit them together in their mother's womb. And you love them. You love them so much that you were willing to sacrifice your only beloved son so that they could spend eternity with you. And Father, I pray for that one or two this morning that know they've heard about you and they know, but they've never acted on it. It's never shuffled from the head to the heart. And Spirit of God, I pray in this moment that you would speak to those and that you would draw them to yourself. But Lord, the majority of us here this morning do know you and yet so often we fail to, 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 to act on what we know. And we use this human temple for all kinds of things that break your heart. 
with a complete disregard for you, what your word says. And Father, I pray in this moment, Spirit of God, that you would convict and that you would challenge. And Lord, help us to not be like Belshazzar, who was warned and who heard the word proclaimed and sat in church all his life and ignored it. He didn't humble himself, though he knew. I just wonder if there's any here this morning that would raise a hand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You would just say, Jim, I, that's me. And I humble myself in this moment, and I'm not afraid or ashamed to declare it. That person's me. I see that hand. See that hand. See that hand. What are you doing with what you know? What are you doing with what you know? Heavenly Father, I prayed for those who were bold enough to raise their hands this morning. And Father, as we think about that, great day that lies before us, that day of judgment. We think of how pathetic it is to be afraid that I was afraid to lift my hand in the church. Lord, I thank you for those who are willing. And Father, how good to know that your word says you forgive. We are in a day of grace. You forgive seven times 70 and over and over and over. So, Lord, I pray for those this morning. I pray for those that that have raised their hand indicating that they know about you, but they don't know you. Father, would you meet them this morning? They're saying they want to know you. Would you meet with them? In Jesus' name.